Episode 248 of the Bevan James Isles Show, an interview with Inga Gannett on dealing with eating disorders. Radio team, welcome along to episode 248 of the Bevan James Isles Show, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of exercise so you can get all the amazing benefits that come alongside it. Got a really good interview today, actually, a lady by the name of Inga Gannant. Uh, she's a lady I've known uh, through the fitness industry for a very long period of time. Um, she was a very, very high-level dancer, achieved massive things in the fitness industry, and has gone on to study psychology and has put a particular interest in eating disorders. And a few months ago, I was in Melbourne. She lives in Melbourne uh, doing some work over there. And when I was there, we were just chatting. And she was just telling me what she was doing in her career. And I just absolutely loved it. And I said, I actually messaged her when I got back from Australia. And I said, I'd love to get you on the show to talk about some of the work that you are doing. And so here we are today. And you're going to be listening to this interview really soon. It's a really cool interview. Um, Some really interesting insight. Uh, yeah, so it, it's on eating disorders, so uh, if you are someone who has eating disorders, there might be something in there for you. I think eating disorders is a bit like, it's, it kind of touches us all nowadays, if I'm going to be honest, because now, I don't know your life, but I, but I imagine most of us probably know somebody who we have some concerns around with eating disorders. It might be yourself, it might be a family member, it might just be somebody within your periphery of your life who you may think have some some problems with this, and so it's a really important discussion and by no means is the discussion I have with Inga today the answers to all things eating disorders but it's a it's she's got an approach which is an interesting approach so yeah I highly recommend well you know just it's a really awesome interview so I'm not going to spend much time getting talking before the interview today just basically we talked for like 50 minutes in the interview so I'm going to pretty much get straight into it. just a couple of little quick things uh, thank you for those who have got my book already if you haven't got my book or you think you know somebody who get value out of my book. The book is called I Will Make You Passionate About Exercise. It's also, the website is passionaboutexercise.com. Uh, when you get the book, you get 12 free workouts. You get this goal-setting workshop I've created. Uh, you also get the book, obviously. And it's a guide way to help you go from doing nothing to having a lifetime love of exercise. If you can get the book or recommend the book, that's really great. Also, I want to say a massive thank you to the patrons of the show. These are the people who basically donate to the show every time I release an episode of the show, and I really appreciate the support that the patrons give. And when you do become a patron, you get a cool Bevan James Isles show nickname, and these are some of the people who have done that. We've got Mac Forrest Warhol, Akhurst. We've got Holly, the go-getter Woodhouse. We've got Sue, the only way up is up Chisel. We've got Denise Abfabdana. We've got Nathan, I don't know your last name, Nathan the Hurricane. And then we've got Marie Jane, the Magic Moriko. These are all people who support the podcast. If you want to become a patron, and I really do, if you listen to the show, the way I look at it, if you listen to the show and you get lots of value from the show, um, you know, that's basically the cost of a magazine. So if, if you even if you chuck a dollar my way, it really makes a difference. Uh, so yeah, there we go. And actually, I will just want to say one thing. So yeah, if you want to become a patron, go to bevanjamesisles.com, go to through the patron page. It's all pretty obvious from there. Um, I just got, I've been getting some amazing feedback on the challenge I put on the last podcast. And uh, so if you're doing the 21-day challenge, keep it up. And if you are doing it, I'd love to hear some feedback on the other side of it. So once you've actually done the challenge, if you want to send me an email, just give me some feedback. I may even get someone on and interview them. So if, you want to, if you're doing my 21-day challenge, 
and you're interested in me interviewing you about the process, maybe flick me an email once you've completed it and I'll maybe get you on to interview you. Anyway, here is the main gist of the show with Inga. Right, a team, I'm very excited to have a lovely lady by the name of Inga Gannett. Now, we had to, I had to ask her how to say that before we actually started speaking today, but um, <laughs> so welcome along to the show. Thank you very much. So I suppose before we kind of, you know, I'm, I was kind of motivated to get you on the show because I was in Melbourne about a month ago and we you were telling me about kind of the work you're doing with your study and your career and I found it really fascinating. So I thought it'd be quite cool to have a chat about that on the show, but let's start, take a step back and maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and you've worked in fitness for a long time. So maybe just give us an, uh, an introduction to Inga. Sure. Um, well, hopefully this will be helpful for maybe some of your younger viewers who are wondering what to do with their life, because my experience of life has certainly been one that has shifted and changed um, throughout my kind of career, I guess you can call it that. and something that I always reflect on is the fact that even though it has been quite a diverse sort of range of roles and um, opportunities that have come my way, I've taken something from everything. So I started off, I left school after fifth form to pursue a career in classical ballet because that was just my absolute love and passion. And so I successfully auditioned for the New Zealand School of Dance and um, and I attended that school for a couple of years, but then shifted over to a different institution in Melbourne called the Victorian College of the Arts that was um, a little bit more suited to me as a person um, and also my aspirations, which following quite a significant injury had, had shifted a little more towards contemporary dance. Um, and from there, I... I I did a bit of project work, which is the nature of contemporary dance, unfortunately, a lot of the time. Um, and I'm so old that it was it was pre-social media. Yeah. <laughs> and so information was probably a little bit less easy to get. Even the internet wasn't very good then. Mm. Um, and I, I, I do often think, geez, I wish I had had all of that information at my fingertips because I probably would have done a little bit more with those skills at that time. But then um, I floated around a few different roles and one of those roles was actually in, I moved back to New Zealand for a couple of years. Sorry, that's my dog sneezing. Okay. And um, I ended up in working in Les Mills in Wellington in sales and really enjoyed it. So I worked there for a few years and then ended up back in Melbourne. Um, and it was at that point that I really started to fall in love with fitness. So I enjoyed doing the classes before that. But then when I moved back to Melbourne, it was when I, I don't know, it was like there was like a, a switch that was flicked and it was almost like I was able to use a lot of the skills that I'd developed through dance in just a really different way that probably had a bit less pressure and was a good challenge It was because because we know that it's a challenge and it doesn't matter how long we've been doing it, we're always learning. Um, and so that's how I kind of got into fitness, which I've been in since 2008 as, a, as an instructor, that is. And then um, 
and then sort of I guess my third career which is in psychology happened um, maybe around I think I studied started studying it around about 10 years ago it's quite a long quite a long journey um, because I'd always been really curious and I I thought it would be something that I would be good at and that I'd enjoy mm -hmm. and again sort of similar to fitness that it would have longevity and in, in that no human is the same so you're never going to know everything and you're always going to be learning and that's something that I value a lot and yeah so that's when I started studying it and, and I'm just a few months away from f finishing a qualification that's a clinical PhD so you do your clinical masters alongside a full PhD and that's what I'm doing at the moment. I've got a couple of questions about your history so leaving school at 15 to, to, to chase the dance dream um, were your yeah. parents supportive of that because uh, you know it's it's a you know like it is kind of a one and it's you know it's a very small percentage game isn't it not many people actually get the opportunity to make a career out of dance um and was that a tough decision or were you just kind of like all on board oh i just did not doubt it for a second okay okay and i i mean i i would say i didn't give them any choice but of course when you're that age of <laughs> I mean, you kind of can't do anything without the yeah. support of your parents yeah. because they, for a start, are supporting you emotionally, physically, and financially. So mm. I couldn't have done it without them. And I was really lucky that I come from a family where um, hard work is really valued and um, there's a, the, a, the belief that's instilled in us around if you have something that you want to try, then you should. Mm, and mm. so I was really, really fortunate. Um, how much, how much maturity did you have to gain? Because, you know, I met, you know, 15 years still, you're pretty young, you know, let's be honest. And oh, it, I know, you know, and then going into a world where you are, I imagine you were with adults pretty much from day one. What was it like? And also a competitive, oh. really high pressure world as well. Yeah, there's a lot of layers to that. Obviously, I've unpacked a lot of them as it, as I've trained as a psychologist as well, I've been able to reflect on that. And the first thing I probably would say is that I look back on my younger self um, with just, I just think, oh my gosh, like you're, you're adorable. I can't believe you thought that, that you could just do whatever you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas now I, I carefully consider every single choice and decision that I make. Whereas back then I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this now. <laughs> so um yeah, I think it, it's a big deal and, and I've I've kind of gone off on a tangent. Uh what was can you can you please well, ask just, that you know, question like, again? How did it make you grow up? Because again, you, you go mm. from a being a a kid basically into a high pressure, mm. I imagine very competitive and I imagine there's aspects of it that aren't healthy um you know what was that kind of growth experience like for you and it, how did you manage it yeah um so it probably started before that because funnily enough a, a few years prior my um stepdad who's quite into sports had engaged with a sports psychologist oh wow because my parents thought Jeez, this is a lot for like a 13 year old to be dealing with. Yeah. Um, 
having big goals and aspirations, but also having to to put up with and and try and deal gracefully with losing mm. and losing when things are really mean a lot to you. Mm. Um, dealing with setbacks and knockbacks and injuries and disappointments because those are things that that are part of um, the world of of certainly ballet and and dance. Um, to, to a, a large degree as well. So I think that it probably I was really mature in a lot of ways and then probably quite immature in a lot of ways too because from a, from such young age, I remember deciding when I was nine, I remember the exact moment that I decided that this was going to be exactly what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I was in at an audition in Christchurch, actually. We were living in Christchurch and I went attended this audition and, again, it was maybe a little similar to that that switch going off um in group fitness it was like all of a sudden i kind of got it and and i stood in the posture of a ballet dancer and i mm. held my head like a ballet dancer and i could understand the expression and and that type of thing it was it was this quite strange experience and um yeah so i had decided really young but what that also meant is that I didn't go out drinking and I didn't party and so and I didn't and I was really driven at school and I I did really well at school even though I left so early mm. I did do well and so I didn't and and there's probably good and bad things to, to both right I, I didn't have made me make some of the normal mistakes that a teenager would would usually make <laughs> And I, because I think that some of those mistakes are actually really valuable. Mm. If you can do it in, a, in an environment where you're supported and, you know, and it's not too significant and you're able to kind of pull yourself back from it. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, yeah. while, while you're kind of streaming here, there are some kind of missed opportunities and where you could have learned life other than other ways. Yeah. And I, I've developed that since. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you, yeah. you're now you're now a party Maybe animal. Just in a... no. Oh, <laughs> yeah. absolutely! Yeah, as I go to bed at. at well, here's another question for you. You know, so so then you kind of go on, and and obviously it didn't last, and and um and a it's a tough game, and b it's a body game, so there's always limits around those things. Um, and then you decide you're going to study what probably you know late twenties, um, something around there. And um, what was it like to go? to study was that a scary moment like obviously you had been a successful up to the age of 15 at school but what was that like for you ah hmm. oh, that's a great question what happened was um and i know that it's a little bit different in new zealand but in australia if you already have any degree there's often a pathway into another profession that you can do by um enrolling in something called a grad dip which is basically all of the undergraduate courses that you would generally do for example in psychology you can do it as a grad dip so you don't have to do the whole broad degree again so i enrolled in one of those and honestly at the start i was not very good i didn't i like i was i was average at best i would have been average at best in terms of my grades and that type of thing but what i did is i've just worked really really hard and um I was really lucky that I made some good friendships quickly and those friendships were with people that were both 
really intelligent and really generous. And what that enabled me to do was to accelerate my learning. And I could almost feel my brain opening up as we as we progressed. Mm. So I took two years to do that part time. And by the end of it, I was getting good grades because unfortunately in psychology that it's so competitive and there's so many people that are interested in doing it that you really have to, to get pr achieve pretty high marks mm -hmm. in order to be able to keep going. Mm. Can I can I ask because I imagine in that moment when you first start studying and, and you're not killing it and because obviously your character traits mean that you often experience success in life. Um what how was it hard you know and, and, and like and it sounds like you went back to your character traits to get through it. But um ego wise, what was that moment like? Oh, yeah, I did definitely have moments where I was very self-critical. Um, but I think what I've learned to do with that sort of thing is to use it. I can, I'll temporarily allow myself to have those thoughts like, oh, see, you suck. Mm. But then I'll be like, but what are you going to do about it? Mm. What do you, how can you, who, who do you know that could maybe can give you a hand with how to understand this? Mm. Um, and because I really did believe that I really believed in myself at, to be able to do this as a, as a job. Um, and I just knew that I just needed to tick those boxes and be good enough because then by the time it gets to kind of getting into the post-grad courses, marks are important, experience is important, and your personality and your the way that you conduct yourself is also considered important. Mm -hmm. And I, I knew I'd smash that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Because I'm absolutely suitable. I am the right person for that job. Mm. But it's interesting, so isn't it? But I like, I like what you're saying because, you know, like, unfortunately, for a lot of people, when they have that kind of, they hit the wall or, or they're doubtful or full of insecurity, and we all experience it. But for a lot of people, it's a debilitating moment. And ultimately, what you're saying is that mm. even when you experience it, you you knew just move towards action. You know, I, I, I if I can move towards action, there'll be progress, and that gives me the best chance of success. Not bugger this and you know quit or or lack it you know pull back on effort which means there's less chance of success no absolutely not i was working a full-time job i was teaching around about five or six group fitness classes a week working as a trainer and presenter for les mills and so what it meant there was that there were lots of late nights yeah. and i just stayed up until it was done yeah. And I didn't complain because it was such a great opportunity and I needed to work to support myself while I was doing it. And I completely accept that. Mm -hmm. We, I, I think sometimes we have to remind ourselves that even though it is hard, imagine how many people around the world just couldn't even have this opportunity. Yeah. So we can't waste it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good attitude. Okay, so let's let's dig a little bit deep into um what we were talking about when we were in Melbourne. So you and I were just kind of presenting at a workshop with a big at a big Les Mills thing. Uh and you kind of just tell me about some of the stuff you're doing with um eating disorders and some of the group work you did. And so maybe just tell us where that starts from and kind of where, you know, just kind of talk about it because I'm I was fascinated by it. Mm, sure. So when I was in my first year of my PhD, I did spend a large proportion of that year trying to work out what can I actually research and for me I wanted it to be something that was 
as meaningful as it could be within the constraints of a short um, project because it's a pretty short period of time and yeah. there's lots of other things that you're doing and so lots of reading lots of discussions with my supervisors and what we landed on was that eating disorders are, are a pretty big problem for a lot of people and even disordered eating so um, I might just go back one step there's a there's a couple of classification systems that we use in, to, in medical or sort of psychological professions and they classify different mental disorders like we would classify diabetes for example but um, we also understand that that most things occur along a continuum and so we might slide up and down even if we think about our own experiences of mood we might ha we have days where we feel on top of the world and then we have other days where we don't and that's really normal so you could imagine you're sort of sliding up and down that continuum a little bit and when we think of someone being maybe unwell it would be where you've kind of got to a point where it's actually really impacting on that person's life and if we think about that in terms of eating disorders there's a set criteria that someone might meet for one of the known eating disorders or the subclinical eating disorders but then within that there's other people that don't meet any of it where it could actually impact on their life so we would call that disordered eating so i'm really talking about both of those okay um and the problem is that with eating disorders the current treatments only elicit around about a 50 percent recovery rate oh wow so that means that out of the very small proportion of people who access treatment and the, the the average duration of illness prior to even engaging in treatment is five years wow. that person's been suffering for five years before something happens where they then engage in, in treatment can I, can I say, um, sorry can i just ask do you yeah just mm -hmm. do you know how much like uh, uh, this might be hard to answer but as a percentage of society mm -hmm. how many people have eating disorders Oh yeah, that's it's really tough. hard. Okay. Yep. Yeah, yep. I don't know. Probably lots. Lots more than because we think, I it's so underreported, and it would be really underreported in men as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't it? Okay, sorry, but keep yeah. going. I was just kind of curious. Heaps. Yeah. Maybe one percent, but maybe I'd say a lot more than that. Yeah. And and I I've worked with people that describe their what they what they're going through, and I'm like, well, that that's you're meeting the criteria for an eating disorder am i um, oh that's just how i've always been yes if we can do something about this <laughs> this is okay yeah. this is how is this what you're experiencing yep okay we know what this is okay. so um even though i'm saying that people occur along a continuum the good thing about having names for things is that then there's a shared understanding so if, if i speak to a gp or a psychiatrist and we've got this label i guess it is then there's acknowledgement that we know what each other are talking about yeah um yeah so that's where it's quite helpful so, and, so taking you back so 50 percent of the people who, who get treatment which is mm -hmm. pretty minor anyway don't actually get an outcome yeah. no wow yeah so some what will often happen is that say if it's if it's severe enough that someone enters hospital or um, inpatient treatment at the end of it that they may have say gained 
enough weight to be medically stabilised and they're not engaging in a particular number of behaviours and, and that kind of thing. But what the qualitative research tells us is that although that might be the case, for the people that relapse, often they feel as though there's underlying things that are happening for them that haven't been addressed. And so what, what that brought us to was that for a significant portion of people with eating disorders, they have previously experienced trauma and then also trauma-related symptoms. Um, and that could be as bad as having post-traumatic stress disorder, which is PTSD. And again, there's lots and lots of people who terrible things happen to, and they may um, be able to process that within a, a period of time and, and actually recover. And so they don't get PTSD, mm. but then for some people they do. So mm. that, and that, that can um, mean that they have symptoms like re-experiencing what has happened, um, avoiding certain things that might remind them of that incident or incidents, and that there's this overwhelming sense of threat. So if we take those two things together, um, we know that we need to improve eating disorder treatments. And something that's been happening in the medical world is, is much more personalised medicine. So that means that medicine is created for that person for their genes and that's about as far as my knowledge goes i okay. don't want to yeah. yeah. <laughs> go into it too too much but that's that's the gist of it and so we thought well we know there's this large subset of people who have this comorbidity and then there's some shared psychological factors that probably are difficult for for both of these disorders and maybe worse when they occur together which are things like having trouble with regulating emotions, understanding emotions. Emotions can feel really threatening and overwhelming. Um, they uh, have experienced high levels of shame. And what that can mean is that that shame can then elevate their own sense of self. So they can have quite a negative self-concept. And you can imagine that if those things are going on and someone's giving them this logical treatment, which is like, okay, when this feeling happens, try and resist it. But underneath that, you've got this sense of self where you're like, well, this is probably my fault and I deserve it. Mm. Well, then it's really hard to get a lot of traction. Yeah. Shall I keep going? No, keep going. I love it. Keep going. Yeah. The punchline. Yeah. yeah. So then what, what we, what we um, came across was a treatment modality, which was created by, Professor Paul Gilbert in the UK, and it's a compassion-based intervention. So it's called compassion-focused therapy, and it's basically a skills training, which is um, known as compassionate mind training. And what it does is that it, it teaches a series of activities and exercises to el elicit different parts of ourselves, like our parasympathetic nervous system by regulating and slowing down our breath, um, changing the expression on our face and the vocal tone that we talk to ourselves with, because that can also trigger off physiological responses in our bodies um, and, and help us to respond in a more compassionate way. And compassion involves 
action and engagement. So being able to engage with things that are difficult in life and then take the necessary steps to be able to alleviate that challenge or that, those difficulties and move through. It's not about just being like really fluffy and nice. It's like, no, life is really hard. Mm. And sometimes we've got to find a way to move through that struggle in a more helpful way that doesn't harm us and doesn't harm others. And so, so I I seem to recall you said you also do it in like a group environment, the the training kind of system. So talk about that. Yeah. So what we did was um, I went off and, and did the training in Sydney and then I did some more training up in Germany with Paul and what we what we've delivered is um, some group sessions for people that that identify as having both trauma and uh, and sort of PTSD symptoms as well as an, an eating disorder. And we designed a ten week program, two hours per week, where we taught the psychoeducation around how our brains are quite tricky and we can get stuck in these loops then developing the compassionate part of ourselves, which is compassion to ourselves towards others, and then being able to accept it from others, which is often the hardest one. Oh, really? And then we unpack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you give an example? You Can you give an example of that? Yeah. So imagine if you, if really deep down you didn't feel like you deserved it and someone was really compassionate towards you, imagine how hard that would feel. Mm. It almost feels disgusting. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So you reject so it that's anyway. A, it's a really, really normal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. Such a normal and response. It, and it's quite a common response in people in these situations. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Mm. But often what we can, and and it can be, it doesn't have to be, but it could be that their caregivers early in life didn't react to them in that way. And that can that can be quite a challenge in terms of things like our attachment system and being able to feel safe and secure. Mm-hmm. But we can always improve it. We can always start to generate those feelings and sensations for ourselves, even if it's not something that was given to us. So, you, so yeah. kind of it's training it as a conscious process, so that eventually mm-hmm. it becomes something that is more installed in you as a person. Yeah. Exactly, okay. exactly. And I, I've worked with some people that are highly sceptical and fair enough because how could you not be? It's mm. it, it's a really different way of, of working on these, these difficulties. Um, but quite often there'll be something or someone in their life where they know exactly what it is. It could be towards your dog or towards your child or... It could have been that there was a neighbour that lived next door to you when you were growing up or a grandparent or a teacher even that has shown you this. And so innately we know what it is. It's just that sometimes maybe it's gone a little bit offline and we need to tap back into it and work on it and strengthen it like a muscle. Mm. Yeah. And 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 I've I've found... Oh, sorry, you go. You mm, go. There you go. Yeah, well, I found that often people will participate in the groups and then all of a sudden they'll they'll get there on one of the weeks like week five or week six and all of a sudden 
this compassionate part of them has come online. So they might have endured something, I don't know, like road rage or someone at the supermarket cutting them off or doing something. And whereas usually that would trigger a a whole lot of rage in, in them, they found that they were able to tap into that more compassionate response. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And what kind of techniques are you teaching them? You know, like obviously it's about compassion, but give us an example of a technique that you would teach them, obviously, because you're kind of saying there's kind of a double tier approach. A, we need to educate them on the, what's happening and, and the background of it all. And then obviously there's probably mm-hmm. teaching them the awareness of when it's happening. I imagine it's a big part of it. So teaching them, is it, would that be right? Yeah, definitely. So mindfulness is one of the things that comes in fairly early on. And that can be a real struggle for people, particularly who have experienced trauma, because sitting with their body and their breath and really focusing internally can be something that is not comfortable. So there's other ways that we can bring maybe a bit of more of an external focus, like a simple one would be that they can maybe do some colouring in or hold on to some squishy balls and imagine that their breath is flowing out to those squishy balls as opposed mm-hmm. to into their bodies. Um, but then what that reminds us is that we all have that capacity of being able to shift where our attention goes. That's really what mindfulness is, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. about shifting mm-hmm. our attention. Yeah. And then in, in compassion focused therapy, and you can easily Google this and you can actually do the whole exercise with Paul Gilbert online um, is so something called soothing rhythm breathing. And within that, we set the posture so that when we're sitting upright, it, it triggers much different a much different feel in our body. As it's kind of it's determining your emotional forced. state. It's, it's basically creating an emotional it does. state. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah. 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 So we do that and then we um, we slow down our breath and then like i said before we almost bring like a a little bit of a smile to our face and then as well as that we will almost invite ourselves into that practice with our own our own voice in our own head um and i'm not going to give you an example (laughs) because it's embarrassing <laughs> and that's I save that only for the people in the groups. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we do that and then we start to practice that each week. So okay. there's a yeah, there's a combination of different things that happens. Um and and it's based in, in all the different types of research that Paul's used. Um and then even the cueing, so there's some cueing that we use within that, and that's mind slowing down and body slowing down, which is not something we do all that often. Mm, we don't mm. slow down. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's hard, especially people like us. We're pretty go, 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 right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm. Yeah. And then from there, we we start to build what that compassionate image is as well as having a a safe place that we can go to in our mind. So there's a lot of use of imagination. Mm, Sounds like it. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that's something that you've used in fitness, but I use a lot of visualization in group fitness. Mm, Same. Yeah. 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 So it's that same thing. Like the power of our mind is, is quite unbelievable. And sometimes we can imagine something before and and then make it real yeah so we, if we imagine it imagine it it's not 
quite so hard to tolerate. No, I'm a big believer in it. I'm a big believer in even like it's the way I live my day is I, I see my day before I live it and see the moments that I have to confront which are challenging and yeah. and try to win the moment before I experience the moment. You know, like that's kind of what you're doing really with visualization or any technique like that. It's kind of kind of foreseeing the future and seeing the bits that are going to be a struggle. And and the thing is you can often see them. You know what I mean? Like especially if you are living a kind of regular day, mm. you can often see the bits that are going to be confronting for you. And so it is that kind of, okay, well, how do I go into that bit? with the best chance of success is kind of, you know, and um, obviously I'm just doing it more in a practical sense of being a higher self, but you, you're obviously using with these people in moments where you could be vulnerable, how you're going to deal with it in a way that's actually more compassionate, which will help you moving forward. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And because then in the middle of the, I think week six and seven, we really start to work on our emotions. Um, so we, we think about, we might think of a, of a difficult situation and then we work through some of the base emotions that that most of us experience, which are anger, anxiety, sadness. And then we move into how would our compassionate self respond to this? Yes. So we'll think about, we'll, we'll um, and we share this as a group. You were asking before about, well, why do you do it as a group? There's a couple of reasons. Um, number one, it's less, less cost. Yep. But actually i'd say that the main benefit is that sitting in a room with people that get you and you don't have to explain yourself to is really nice mm. and there's this shared understanding hey we've all been through some stuff and not, we don't we don't ever um talk about that we don't say okay tell us your life story in front yeah. of everyone it's a skills based thing um yeah so so but once we've built that trust and rapport between the group members, they're able to support one another and um, and help to share their own experiences in a way that's appropriate and safe. And this, the the when we talk about the emotions, it's really where everyone realizes that these things that I've been experiencing and feeling and struggling with, actually everyone else is too. Mm. So how does it, how does it show up for us? How does it feel in our body? Where do we feel it? What does that feel like? What do we notice in our mind? What does that angry part of us want to do to the other person, to the situation? What does it want, want for us? What's it trying to protect us from? Mm. And the stance is, and I, I, I think this is just such a great, thing to think about is that all of these emotions are actually really helpful because they're telling us something about the situation mm. and then at the end of that we think about okay well when we get really angry and it feels really out of control what are some of the ways that we know that we can start to tone that down and regulate the way that we're feeling and what that allows people to do is to recognize that emotion better. So when it comes out, it can go, you can, instead of feeling just totally overwhelmed, totally shut down, out of control, whatever it might be, ah, oh, that's anger. It's, it's come here and it's trying to help me to navigate this situation. And okay, that, thank you for being here, yeah. anger. That's awesome that is really great. It's a bit overwhelming right now. And I know that if I just slow myself down and I go somewhere where I feel safe 
or I breathe and I or I label it, whatever it might be, there's lots of different ways that people may cope with that. Is it actually it becomes not so scary. Mm. And it's not an instant thing, but it is definitely something that I've found everybody is able to connect with. Well, I think the other thing about that group dynamic as well is one thing I find I love working with groups as well. Um, and exercise, obviously, but even when you're trying to do kind of self-development stuff and because there's also process and listening to other people, you know, and as you're kind of saying, yes. you know, like you're processing yourself, even if someone's talking about their experience, you are going through your own processing in that as well. And if you are creating a quite a safe environment where people can freely express, then you are getting to that deeper level, which helps people to process to a deeper level as well, isn't there? Yeah, I'm really glad you said that because that is actually one of the most important parts of compassion focused therapy um each with a, a, a structure to the session but at any point along the way if the group needs longer or needs to some more time in, in one of the portions of that session well then we take it mm. and for that exact reason and i found we've run seven groups and each one of them is completely different depends on the people in the group what's happening for them um yeah so that that processing and once that trust has been built and people are able to share their ideas and thoughts and support with one another then that's where the real magic happens and it's actually not from us as facilitators it's definitely the people in the group who create that so 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 how long did you say it's an eight-week program 10. Okay, so they, so they so they work through this ten week process. They're, they're kind of flexing the muscle of developing this kind of kind of um, process of working through this in a healthier way and and learning the trigger moments earlier, mm-hmm. how to deal with the trigger moments. So for that reason, they then don't go to the place of the bad eating habits or the bad eating behaviors, or if you know what I mean. Yeah. So what what we're really trying to target um, in the group? Well, number one build greater a greater sense of compassion so that when difficult things happen there's a more adaptive way of coping that's helpful to them um, but then alongside that greater compassion is associated with less shame and self-criticism oh, okay and okay. though yeah so that's actually what we're really targeting within this treatment modality we don't will occasionally occasionally I'll, i might say hey this is something that's come up that i've heard people that that have eating disorders and, and ptsd talk about how does that resonate with you and then the discussion might go on from there but other than that we're not saying you need to eat at this time and you need to eat this and that and stop doing this and thinking that it's actually what we're really hoping for is that through this process of developing a a greater sense of compassion which of course 10 weeks is just the beginning Mm, but we do find that that yeah that people really do start to develop it that they that they will will understand deeply that whatever it is that's happened it's absolutely not their fault but it is their responsibility to keep working on it and that's of course if you if you have the capacity to be able to do that and mm. and that yeah so we're not even really we we work alongside 
their treating teams, which may be their GP, psychiatrist, psychologist, and they'd still be receiving individual support for the for whatever it is that they're working on at that time, whether it's the trauma or eating disorder or both. Um, and then we're trying to help develop these skills that will that will help to successfully set them up long term. Mm. So that there's some patterns that have changed and that that they're able to I don't know, um just manage life. Not be so bogged down yeah Yeah. with with these things that are going on and a a lot of the people that were that we're working with are very high functioning people you if you looked at them you wouldn't be like oh you've got you've got all this really hard stuff going on you would not know that yeah no no, it wasn't the case isn't it so Mm. um i I don't know if you guys have been doing it long enough to know you know if, if 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 we look at the model that you talked about earlier where not many people actually get treatment and of those only 50 percent uh, you know, long-term success. Have you guys been doing this long enough to see if it's a better way forward? Um, the way the way that I'd probably comment on that is that it's it can be a piece of the puzzle for some people that if it comes at the right time can be really helpful. Okay, nice. Yeah, it's not, I wouldn't say, hey, we all just need to do this from now on because yeah. this is the perfect fix. It's kind of like if it comes at the right time where that person is ready and committed and feels motivated enough to to embed this within their life and they've had enough support and have ongoing support around their eating disorder or their trauma symptoms, then it can be really helpful. Yeah, nice. That's really good about it. Yeah. I, I do have a couple of questions which are kind of on topic but different topic. Um, you know, Eating disorders seem to be more prevalent now, and maybe it's social media. I, I I can't really put my finger on. It. I don't know the answers, but it definitely seems to be more mm. of a, a problem. Um, first of all, for those who are around the people, so let's say you've got a daughter, mm. or you've you know, or you've got you know someone in your life who you you know is having problems. What's the best way to address it? Because it's such a like I know as a fitness professional, I know there's people in my world who have eating disorders. I never mm. really bring it up. Like if they talk to me, like I've had some no. people who trust me a lot um, and they may bring stuff up with me and that's cool and I'll, and I'll, I'll try to support them and guide them to, towards the right people at least. Um, but, you know, is, is it my role to say something? You know, like it's such a delicate thing. Yeah, and and as, a, as a fitness instructor, like let's say I'm a fitness instructor at the gym, it's, it's probably not really my role. It's a tough one. But, but for the people in the world who do have people around them who – they know that what we had, what is like, and I know there's no, not a perfect answer for this, but what would be your advice? So the first thing to know is that eating disorders are caused by a number of things. So we, we know that there's the biological basis, which means that you might have some genes that make you a little more prone to developing difficulties in this area. It doesn't mean you will. Um, but you might and so obviously that's not your fault Um, and then you might have some psychological um, factors like being a perfectionist or being like really driven those those types of things might might mean that you're a little bit more susceptible because when you do something you do it really well (laughs) you're really committed yeah, it's like I'm the yeah. most disciplined and eating, not eating is a disciplined thing. So it's a, it's kind of a reinforcing of character trait. 
Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 Um, there might be something around um, sort of aspects of your social environment, whether it's at school or a particular sport. I know there's a lot of pressure on people like runners mm. to look a particular way that's actually not necessarily got anything to do with how well they can run. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, those those um, pro- those problematic um, thoughts are starting to shift. Well, and, I, and I'm sure you saw it in dance, like in dance. I imagine there was a bit of that back in the day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, um, and again like there's there's a sort of more athletic aesthetic that is becoming more popular mm. which is a really positive shift so um but i think that it's still it's still, still a pretty challenging mm. area with dance i think i do find that with dancers they may they may um, be fairly restrictive when they're dancing in terms of their food and stuff, but not that many people would typically sort of go on for it to be a lifelong thing or okay. and when they stop, they'll kind of um, be able to, to sort of move through it. Yeah. But it can be, yeah, I mean, I've heard some, some pretty harsh horror stories, um, but I've recently worked actually with the Australian Ballet School and found that, they are yeah i mean the director there and is just amazing and really embraces individuality with the dancers which i think is it's just a massive shift forwards from what my perception of it was 20 years ago when i was still dancing Mm -hmm. so i think it is absolutely moving in the right direction so yeah knowing that it's a it's a number of things that can lead to someone having these difficulties um so find some online resources i'm in victoria in australia and there's a wonderful organization here called eating disorders victoria and they've got some great info on their websites i'm sure there's an equivalent in new zealand or wherever it is that that people are tuning in from Um, but some of the things that i always think of is to try and educate yourself and think about the fact that that person is probably experiencing things like a really high level of anxiety mm. around this. Mm. It was funny Shame. you say that because when I was younger, my I would stutter if I was insecure. Um, and when, when I was a druggie, it actually became a big problem. Like I just stutter all the time. And then when I mm. gave up drugs, it was never a problem. And then I actually had a really bad experience with Les Mills. I went to America for like three or four months and it was a really horrible experience. Like everything about it sucked. And I, and I remember I started oh. stuttering again. It was really fascinating. And I remember I was just hope nobody noticed it. You know, like all I cared about was, and I remember when someone once said to me, if you stutter a lot, don't you? And when someone said it, it just hurt. Like it was just like not knife through the heart kind of stuff. Yeah. And it was really fascinating because I was working, I was struggling so much within myself with it anyway, but you're kind of just hoping no one notices. And then once someone else acknowledged it, it was even worse. You know, it was like, it was, yeah, it was really tough. Yeah. It was interesting. Yeah. 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 And you, and I think there's a lot of myths around eating disorders um, I, when I've worked with families, it's it's always it breaks my heart when I see parents that are that are blaming themselves, mm. and just even having that conversation to let them know, hey, this is just there's a whole lot of things that are at play here, and it's mm. it is no one's fault, and they mm. 
it really sucks and it's really hard and i'm so sorry that you're going through this but let's let's just do what we can to help you and your family and this young person who's struggling so much um so shame embarrassment guilt um a lot of people with eating disorders may not even recognize or maybe kind of in denial that it's a problem. Mm. So knowing that too, yeah. some of the recommendations that we give to people are, are using I statements. So I really care about you and I'm really worried because okay. I've noticed this and this and just letting them know that, that you're a safe person that they can talk to, but also feeling like you've got to solve it yourself because you don't. Mm. Um, Even though I do this for a job, if I noticed that a friend of mine was struggling, then I would be pointing them in the direction of help for them and I'd support them as a friend, Mm. not as anything else. And then um, trying to understand how they feel and allowing them the time and just strongly encouraging them to seek help and that you you can support them along the way in a way that is appropriate and okay that feels okay for you yeah. depending on what your relationship is with that person yeah so but be supportive the, 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 supportive towards the right kind of help yeah yeah, yeah. and I, I i always think um having a great gp is absolutely paramount to recovery because they are in that that privileged position where they they can um, they're such great communicators and they also understand sort of the psychological and the medical side mm. and that can be really important. Mm. Um, and then the other oh I forgot to mention one of the main reasons why I that I I love about working in eating, eating disorders is that you can absolutely recover. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, this could be a terrible, terrible problem. And by no means is it easy. And lots of people um, don't necessarily want to work in this area, but I do. And because I firmly believe that you can definitely overcome it. Yeah. It's, Which it's is really important, isn't it? Because that, that sense of hope is really important, isn't it? You know, like, um, hmm. you know, it's tough when you, when there are areas where you can't actually, you know, like you just have to accept that this is going to suck. Um, whereas if there is an area, like you're saying, that if with with work and guidance and, you know, like a progression forward, you can actually get to a better place. Yeah. And that's that's how we feel about, kind of any kind of psychological difficulty that someone's enduring. I think we hear a lot about what's what's a problem and maybe not so much about that the focus on recovery. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we can hear the dog in the background. We can hardly actually hear it, so it's all good. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she must have heard a leaf move. Oh, she's back in bed. Yeah, back, back in bed. Um, just, just yeah. anything else you want to say as we wrap things up here? Anything else you kind of want to comment on or anything else you want to share? Um, well, uh, maybe around in, – in, and I, I don't think this is it. I think I find that – and I might be wrong, but I do find that the gyms in New Zealand and probably encourage a little bit more body diversity, whereas – I don't see much of it 
in in the classes where I teach, maybe it's just where I'm teaching. Mm. But it would be, I I think that it would be really great. And maybe you see this more in your um in your business that you run with Joe. Mm. Is it would be really great if we could find a way of of just inviting more inclusivity into our um into fitness so that more people feel welcome mm. um and included because mm. it doesn't matter it doesn't matter where you're starting from um and and then also thinking about the fact that we've actually all got really different goals mm. and yeah. it doesn't even ha- it doesn't have to be about how you look yeah my goals not. are not about how i look it's really um, interesting because I speak I, to a lot of people who aren't exercisers and struggle with exercise and the, the image really never comes up as their first answer, you know, like it's uh, more about yeah. being able to live a life they want to live, you know, to, you know, to have experiences, you yes. know, like it's, you know, it's, it's more about having energy, you know, they sure some of them want to lose some weight, but it's pretty often mm. like the fourth or fifth answer. Yeah. Cause how confident and awesome and how much do you bounce out of bed in the morning when you're feeling strong and healthy yeah. and yeah. you're just in that flow. Yeah. Um, and I think that I, I really want that for other people and, and it, theirs might not look the same as mine, but I just know how much better and, and probably from going through the pandemic where we were kind of shut indoors for a long time and, um, and, and didn't have that, even just the incidental exercise in mm. Melbourne, we're only allowed outside for an hour a day. And you guys were locked down forever, weren't you? Yeah. It was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was lucky because I was roaming around the hospital wards and actually getting to talk to people. Um, that was, that was massive, a massive privilege, but I did also see the toll that it took on people that happened to land themselves in hospital for one reason or another. Mm. And, then not be able to have their family in there. That was terrible. Yeah, horrific. Yeah, so I don't know. I just, it would be fabulous if if we could just do everything that we can to to be helpful to the people around us. Mind you, how much information is there out there bombarding people? Mm, Yeah. No wonder no one knows what to do. It's It's probably like the whole mental health thing. Yeah. Trust your own inner wisdom. You know, you know yeah. what feels good for you. Yeah. I've worked with people who who uh, have told me they want to become more fit. So then, then they'll set themselves a goal around running, and week after week, they're like, oh, "I'm like, oh, how did you go with your run? Oh, I didn't go. Oh, okay." And then after all, I'm like, "Do you like running?" <laughs> <laughs> and then they'll like, they'll go, "No, I hate it." I'm like. Why, we, why do we have a goal about running then? <laughs> well, so this is what I talk about in my book because the second chapter is find a movement you love. Because you find a movement you love, yes. You know, it's you know, like that's what it's, it's all about. You know, it's like really uh, we've got to get a bit of habit in place. But then we once we find the movement, it's so much easier. You know, and, and the good thing about this is a million yeah. different movements. You know, you know, you, who knows mm-hmm. what you're like unless you try some stuff. You know, and, and so yeah, it's it's yeah. Really interesting. Hey, where do people follow you? If you do, you care about all that kind of stuff. Like, if if you want people to follow you, where do they go? Oh. <laughs> well, you can follow me on Instagram. It's Inga Gannett. Good luck spelling it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be in the title. Of I'll put a link to it in the show notes. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And I do have my own website, which is ingagannett.com. Okay. Um, and then I would recommend Compassion. Oh compassionatemind.co.uk which is uh, Paul Gilbert 
Institute's website. There's lots of info on there um, if anyone's interested in learning a little bit more about compassion-focused therapy or the philosophies behind it, then go for gold. Compassionatemind.co.uk. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Hey, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really insightful, some really good knowledge here. And So there you go. As I was saying before the interview, some really insightful stuff there, some really interesting stuff. And I'll put links to both Inga's website on there and that compassionate uh, website on the show notes. Uh, that will be, if you're listening on your listening device right now, if you just go to the show notes right now, you can actually just click on it and there'll be a link in there. Or you can go to my website, which is bevanjamesisles.com. I've got a really cool concept for the next episode, so make sure you listen up for the next episode because I've been working with a client recently who I've worked for for a long time and it's made massive progress, but recently we've kind of found a tool that's helped them go to the next level and there's been some really cool learnings in there, some some really powerful stuff. So in the next episode, I'm going to kind of put that in place and I'm going to teach it to you and, and I might even do another challenge. I'm liking these challenge things, you know, this kind of 21 day challenge. I might give you another, a 10 day challenge, the Bivin challenges. I could have lots of different challenges for you. So uh, yeah, if you look out for that, couple of quick things. If you enjoy the show, please go on your podcatcher and do a review. If you want to become a patron, go to bevanjamesisles.com. You then go to podcasts, support the show, go through the process. If you want to do get some of my other work, it's my 5K running program, my 5K dream, uh, or my new book, I Will Make You Passionate About Exercise. You can go to passionateaboutexercise.com or just go to my website. You can also get it there. Thank you for your support. Thanks. Keep doing what you're doing. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. So as always, keep being you. Thank you.